Have you ever had a problem with a guest list? Let's imagine your daughter's getting married. She's budgeted a certain amount per head and that makes a total of, let's say, 80 guests. Now to her, that sounds enough, but you know better. For after the bridal party and the immediate family, there are grandparents, uncles and aunts and cousins and the odd family member, and I, I do mean odd. You do the maths and to your mind your daughter might be lucky to invite eight, maybe ten friends with their significant others. She, on the other hand, is unimpressed with some of the people you want to invite. You see trouble ahead and quietly suggest moving the wedding to Rarotonga <laughs> to self-cull the guest list. And so it begins. You see, guest lists can be a problem. And as we pick up Levi's story, we're going to see that all the angst and all the drama and all the upset is about a guest list. So let's pick this up in uh, Mark chapter 2, verse 14. As Jesus walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed him. Now, this is very similar to what we read in chapter 1, when the four fishermen downed their tools, they were mending nets, they just downed tools and followed Jesus. And Levi does the same. In Luke's account of the same story, he writes, Levi got up, left everything and followed Jesus. So Levi turns his back on his tax-collecting days. And do you know he actually gave up more than the other disciples when he did? You see, the other disciples could and did go back fishing, but Levi could never go back tax collecting. Hmm. Anyway, as we read in chapter 1, Jesus had a meal at Peter's house. Here in chapter 2, Jesus likewise has a meal with a brand new disciple, with Levi. But notice the difference. Verse 15. When Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and, quote, sinners, unquote, were eating with him. You notice the difference? It's the guest list. You see, this is a very different combination of guests than at Peter's house. See, with Peter's lunchtime meal, it was after a synagogue service, and seated around the table would have been all the respectable, middle-class, church-going types. All very agreeable. But here, who's at this meal? Well, tax collectors and sinners. And do you notice the inverted commas on the reading that you have in front of you, the NIV? Hmm. Now, we're a little familiar with tax collectors. They were traitors. They overcharged hard-working, honest Israelites to fund the Roman occupiers, all the while while lining their pockets. Tax collectors were social outcasts, spat on in the streets and not even allowed to worship in the local synagogue. And here's Jesus eating with them. I mean, is this even allowed? And that's only the half of it, because the other group on the guest list, the quote-unquote sinners, are just as bad. Now, why does this passage refer to this second group like that? Why does that refer to them as sinners? Well, it's in anticipation of what's said next. For actually, this is how the Pharisees defined these people. It's not how Jesus defined them, but it's the Pharisees. 
And that's why the NIV tries to emphasise this by putting the inverted commas around the word sinners. Let's see what happens. Mark 2.16. When the teachers of the law who were Pharisees saw Jesus eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Now notice it's the Pharisees that specialised in the law those that were very precise with words and language, they're the ones who defined that second group as sinners, inverted commas. And here we come to the drama, the angst and the tension of today's passage. Levi's miserable life has been turned upside down by Jesus, and it's wonderful. He's a changed man. Levi is so excited that he invites all his friends, his fellow outcasts, to a big meal, a great big barbecue, a party where they can meet Jesus for themselves. Now, probably uninvited. In fact, I'm sure the Pharisees often found themselves uninvited to parties, but uninvited. The Pharisees intrude. It was probably because there were so many people, it was an indoor-outdoor sort of thing, and there was by public space. And the Pharisees were sticking their, sticking their noses into this party. So, What's their beef? Why are they so upset? What's their fuss about this guest list? Well, this is where a bit of background is helpful. Uh, The Pharisees were direct descendants of the Hasidines. 200 years earlier, the Zealot Hasidines, their commitment and devotion to the law saved Israel from extinction. 200 years ago, the Greek Empire was at its zenith, and their philosophy and gods were encroaching on Israel, and there was a great temptation for the Israelites to take on these Greek gods. But the Hasidines stood up and declared, we must not allow this, we must stay true to the law of Moses, the law that God gave us. And they did an amazing job. And the Pharisees are direct descendants to the Hasidines, and even modern-day Orthodox Jews will trace their roots back there. As an aside, it's a reminder to us that a good thing pushed too far can create great evil. Because in their enthusiasm for purity, they added extra laws to those given to Moses, those in our Bible. first five books of the Bible are often called the law or the Pentateuch, and that's where all the laws were given. And in their desire to create a holy nation, the Hasidines added an extra 613 laws. There were 248 do's and 365 don'ts. My oldest boy, um, my oldest son, I shouldn't call him a boy, he's at Victoria University and he's doing a summer paper at Religious Studies. He rang me up in the week and we are talking, I said, what are you working on? And he said, oh, it's something about these Jewish folk and, and they've got 600 and something laws. And I said, 613, that was impressive, wasn't it? <laughs> only, only because I was studying this up. So I was able to have a rather fatherly intelligent conversation. I held court to my ever-forgiving son. And we had a good old chat about this. So he's doing all this in his religious studies paper. Anyway, not following these laws, the ones in the Bible that we have, plus these extra 613, meant that the Pharisees would look down on these other Jews and call them sinners. Now, no one kept all of the laws, not even the Pharisees, but through the temple sacrifice, 
and attending the synagogue regularly, they could stay on track, but not these sinners. For whatever reason, they didn't toe the line. Now this concern for purity is not positive. It's not like a surgeon who arrives well before an operation and scrubs up and scrubs and scrubs and puts on gown and a hat and, and, and scrubs up so that they can get in amongst the patient and heal. No, the Pharisees were interested in purity so that they could isolate the patient. Very different, isn't it? You know, a surgeon is interested in purity, physical purity, so that they can help heal. Where the Pharisees were interested in purity so they could isolate. If you were to sum up the Pharisees' strategies towards sinner, in one word it would be isolate. Don't let their sins contaminate you. Keep away. And we remember the parable of the Good Samaritan where a fellow Jew was uh, lying on the ground beaten, bruised, a Levite and a priest. What do they do when they come across him? Nothing. They keep away. They isolate and move on. So, getting back to Levi's party, the Pharisees see that there are sinners there. Tut, tut. But it's to be expected because Levi's a tax collector. But, hello, Jesus is there also. What's he eating and drinking with them for? How can he possibly be who he says he is if it's if he's having table fellowship with sinners? Now, the Pharisees were already ticked off with Jesus because he forgave the paralytic early on in the chapter. And now he's hanging out with sinners. This is going from bad to worse, certainly in the mind of the Pharisees. And this won't be the last time they get upset with Jesus' table fellowship. In Luke 15, we read, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all gathered around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Earlier in Luke, the Pharisees have already been criticising Jesus, so he responds. So this is Jesus talking back to the Pharisees. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. You see, Jesus had the habit of hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. And in many respects, the Pharisees had every right to be concerned because having a meal with someone is more than just refueling. Eating together was and still is a significant social interaction. It's marked by acceptance, equality, and friendship. Fellowship, even table fellowship, is the phrase we often use. And we remember that oft quoted verse in Revelation, chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am, Jesus speaking, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. The King James says, I will come in and sup with them and they with me. An invitation to Jesus extends to all of us to come and eat with him. Now this is all by way of background to explain the Pharisees' question in verse 15. They asked, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? 
Well, how does Jesus respond? In two ways. He responds with a proverb and then an application. Verse 17. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. That's the proverb. And the application is, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. Do you see what's happening here? The Pharisees are asking, is this permissible? And Jesus is saying, it's my purpose. It's my purpose. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And straight away we see God's strategy for sinners. The religious people's strategy was to isolate. Jesus' strategy is to heal. God sees every sinner as someone with a broken bone that needs to be set or a wound that needs to be dressed. Whereas the Pharisee's strategy was to isolate the infection, Jesus' strategy is, you have a wound, let me tend it. And that's the proverb. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. And then we come to the application. Jesus says, I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And notice here, there is no quotation marks around the word sinners. That's because Jesus is using his definition and not the Pharisees. And the irony is that Jesus' definition for a sinner is far tougher than the Pharisees. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus defines sin in such a tough way that there is no way that we can be right with God. The 613 extra laws are easy compared to what Jesus says. He said, even if you are angry in your heart towards a brother, you are a murderer. Or, even if you look at a person with lust, you have committed adultery. See, Jesus was actually tougher on sin than the Pharisees. His attitude is, you are sinners to the worst degree. All of you. Especially you that's preaching at the moment. <laughs> all of you. There's no hope unless you turn to me. But when you do, I will heal and restore. And it's only those who realise how lost our cause is who come to Christ with humble and very grateful hearts. You know, the key to understanding the Sermon Mount is in the very first words, the very first beatitude. Blessed are thee who is poor in spirit, for thee is the kingdom of God. That key unlocks the whole of the Sermon on the Mount. It's only those that are poor in spirit that understand what follows after. Poor in spirit, desperate in need of a saviour. Jesus is saying, I have not come to call the righteous, those who think they are good enough, they won't listen anyway. I have come to call sinners, those who know that without me they have nothing. And isn't this wonderful news for you and I? Goodness me. Spiritually crippled, emotionally wounded, relationally scarred, Jesus is our good physician. The good and great and grand doctor who will heal and restore and with this application by Jesus, the account of Levi's dinner party comes to an abrupt end. There's no record of how the Pharisees respond. We don't know what the disciples think of this, or even Levi, the host. In fact, this is the one and only account of Levi in the whole of Mark's Gospel. But here's something interesting. Do you know that Peter had two names? Peter and Simon. 
Paul had two names, Paul and Saul. And just like those two men, Levi also has two names in the Bible. Levi and, does anyone know? Yes, Matthew. Levi and Matthew. So we're talking about Matthew here, who went on to write the gospel that's named after him. And so we come to the end of our passage. So what's our take-home? What can we put into practice? Well, first of all, Jesus does not condone sin. The story of Jesus having a meal with those far from God, those engaged in pre-conversion lifestyle, is not an excuse for us to behave in a similar manner. Jesus gladly associated with such people, but he did not condone or get drawn into their lifestyle. Paul lays any confusion to rest with these words. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 9. I have written to you in the letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He'd written an earlier letter, and it's a letter that we don't have, but obviously in that earlier letter he'd said to the church in Corinth, don't associate with the sexually immoral. And the church's response was to isolate. Oh, okay, Paul, we won't associate with people like that. And in Corinth, that's, well, everyone. And Paul has realised that they've misinterpreted, so this is what he said. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or, or adulterers. In that case, you'd have, to ha- you'd have to leave this world. So they had misinterpreted his words and were getting into that isolation mode. And Paul said, well, actually, no, that's not what I meant. What I meant was people inside the church who behave like this, you stay away from. People outside the church, you don't have a choice. Don't isolate yourself. And, of course, that's the, the main point to our second application, not to isolate ourselves. It's, it's tough, though, isn't it? It's like... We've got our boat in the water, but we don't want the water in the boat. I mean, we're out there and in our work, um, you know, whether we're in the, in the vineyards, whether in a retail or in a factory or whatever, we're rubbing shoulders with some great people who may be a little rough around the edges. And so how do we share with them Christ without kind of get infected? <laughs> I mean, that's what the Pharisees wrestled with. We want to be in the water, but we don't want the water in the boat. Now see, the Pharisees, they had their boat as far out of the water as possible. But Jesus would have none of it because he was in the water to save drowning people. So Jesus reminds us not to isolate ourselves. Uh, William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, had a little saying that he would oft repeat. And it goes like this. Someone to live within sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Amazing, isn't it? Profound. And of course, those who know anything of the history of the Salvation Army know that William Booth and his followers put that into practice. I'll read it again. It just hits the nail on the head. Some people want to live within sound of church and chapel bell. I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And so God is saying to us in every church, don't isolate yourself. Don't become a bunch of Pharisees Rub shoulders with those people outside the church. Rub shoulders so that you can share Christ. So two applications. Jesus does not and never will condone sin. And secondly, we are not to isolate ourselves. And thirdly, why not through a Levi party? Now what's a Levi party? Well, in today's passage we've seen the host, 
Levi, with just a few Christians, just Jesus and a few disciples. There were only four at this stage. And then a whole bunch of non-church folk. And we can do the same. We can host a Levi meal. We can invite one or two other Christians and then four or five or six or seven or heaps of other non-church folk. The exact numbers aren't important, but the point is to have more non-church people than church people. A Levi party is not having 10 Christians and one non-Christian because no matter how hard you try, that other one person is going to pick out something and it's going to feel a little uncomfortable because you won't help, help yourself. You'll start talking about church stuff and how the preacher drones on forever or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Why not just have one, two, three good Christian friends and a dozen or so people from work or from um, kindy that you know, you know, parents and have a Levi party, just like he did. And the idea is that you're building relationships. You're getting to know people. You're saying to God, Lord, I don't want to be isolative. I want to get to know people and enjoy them. And you may have a chance to share Jesus at that evening, but probably not. I'd probably recommend you don't, actually. Otherwise, it will feel a bit contrived. But you will be building relationships, and there will come a chance when you think, oh, actually, we've got a parenting course coming up, and... John and Jane, you know, you've got two little kitties. Why don't you come along? I'll come with you. Or an alpha course. And you might say to, you might say to Fred, look, Fred, um, there's an alpha course coming up. Why don't you come along? I'll come with you. It'll be fun. And you build those up when you do things like have a Levi party. And finally, as we come to the communion table, we are reminded that Jesus loves to hang out and share a meal with people. Yes, when we come to this table, our focus is on the work of the cross, the body broken and the blood shed. And yes, it's all about our humble reverence and our heartfelt worship. But it's all about Jesus saying, come round the table, let's have a barbecue. A pretty small barbecue, isn't it? Let's come and have something to eat. Table fellowship, a foretaste of the great and wonderful banquet that's prepared for each one of us. To his table, Christ invites us to. And as we come to the table, I just want to finish with that verse, Revelation 3.20. Take this as a personal invitation to you from Jesus. And Jesus says, here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him, eat with her, and they will eat with me. Don't we serve a wonderful God? Let's pray.